turn to Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 2. Let's list it up there. And I'm going to read the first six verses. And we're in the middle of a few weeks of looking at how we know that Jesus is really the Messiah. And uh, through the book of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Out of you shall come forth a ruler who will, will shepherd my people, Israel. Let's pray. Father, I pray again this morning that as we look at your word and we look at the evidence for Jesus being the promised deliverer that had been longed for for thousands of years, going way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Father, I pray that you would, again, create within us that same longing to know him as our deliverer and our king and the promised one who can change our lives like no one else can. So, Father, give us ears to hear uh, as we look into your word, I pray. Amen. So, for those of you that are walking through life awake, you're uh, aware that we're in the middle of a presidential election. Just thought I'd keep reminding you. <laughs> um, but in the, in the middle of a, you know, every four years, particularly when we go through a presidential election with all the pitching and prodding and begging, pleading for our votes, um, a question in the back of a lot of people's minds, I'm guessing, and maybe in the back of your minds, is this question, maybe, whose side is God on? Um, is he for Obama? Is he for Romney? Is God Republican? Democrat? <laughs> Libertarian? Independent? Green Party? I don't know. I'm, I could go on and on, I'm sure. Who, I'm serious. Whose side is God on? Um, we can tend to be that way as individuals, can't we? Um, making God out to be for 
our cause or our group or our race or our something or another. And, and often then because of the way we represent him in that way or the way we can come across, so often God has come to be viewed as a party person. Um, the white man's God or the property of the Republican Party or something else. So what do you think? Does God love America more than Iran? Does he care, whoa, does he care more about saving a self-centered, flag-waving American than a radical, bomb-carrying Taliban? I want you to, this might be a little hard for some of you to even wrestle with. Should I stand up here? Am I too short and can't see me? No, <laughs> That'd be work better. I'll repeat that last phrase just so you have to think about it or, or, or struggle with it. Does God care more about saving a self-centered, that's what it, to be an American, we pretty much are self-centered, right? Flag-waving American than a radical bomb-carrying Taliban. Does he love a Jew more than he loves a Palestinian? Whose side is God on? The promised one, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the king of the Jews. What does it mean, the king of the Jews? Jesus, the king of the Jews. Whose king was he? Whose king is he? It's interesting that the longing for the Messiah, as I prayed, promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Messiah who would come to crush the head of the serpent. That that Messiah promised thousands of years ago ended up becoming, and if you understand what I mean, a party person in the thinking of the Jewish people. And I don't mean a party person like, woo, although he was accused of that by the Jews also. <laughs> I mean, a friend of sinners. Interesting how, as we look at the history, how this one who had been promised to become the one who would crush the head of the serpent and bring hope to all of humanity as our Savior and as our King ended up becoming in the expectation of the Jewish people the so solely the King of the Jews. The one who was promised in Genesis 49.10, the king who would come from the line of Abraham and who would, whose scepter would not depart from Judah. In, in 1 Chronicles 17.14, the descendant of David. In Isaiah 9, the child who would be born and who, there would be no end to the increase of his government. In Isaiah 33.22, 
the Lord who is our king who will save us. In Isaiah 40.10, the Lord who would come with might with his arm ruling for him. And then as he's described in Isaiah 42, and, and, and we could go on and on, the one who would bring justice to all the nations. Or as in Isaiah 61, the prophecy, the anointed one who would bring freedom for captives, good news to the afflicted, and bind up the brokenhearted, that this one promised, prophesied in the Old Testament, would end up becoming Jewish property. The sovereign king of the nations. Um, Jewish property. And so what I'd like us to look at this morning, if you're wrestling with what I'm talking about, is to look at Jesus and see how he measured up. According to biblical revelation, the expectation of what was looked forward to way back, starting in Genesis 3.15, or fulfilling the expectation of the Jewish people and what they'd come to see and hope in that their deliverer would be. And as we think about that, as we ask, would the real Messiah stand up, the real king of the Jews, this has tremendous relevance for us too because as we come to the end, I want you to be thinking personally, what kind of king is he to me? Um, what is he in relationship to me? Has he become my boss? Is he my boss? To put it in modern terms, okay? We, we don't relate to kings very much or, or lords. That's kind of a, you know, a British thing. Um, is he your boss? Or is he your property? Turn with, so if you're in Matthew chapter 2, we, there's some really interesting, interesting observations that get us thinking and understanding about this. The verses that I read, look at them, and I want you to just notice three interesting observations. The first one is, who is interested in the coming of the king of Jews in these verses? Foreigners. They're called magi here. They come in verse 1, magi from the east, and they're from Persia, probably. Uh, modern day Iran, okay? That's where they're from, these magi. Um, and they're coming following this star that they saw way back then, and they've, and they've traveled a long way in their, their passion to worship this king of the Jews, the Messiah. Isn't that amazing? They're foreigners. They're probably from this caste of astronomers, astrologers in Persia, that has been following the skies and looking for the signs of this one who would come. I'm guessing that they were, um, they were kind of tantalized by a man hundreds of years before who was the leader of this group of people. I think his name was Daniel. Um, look back at Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, there's a, a, an amazing prophecy uh, a vision that God gives Daniel in Daniel 7. 
He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And for hundreds of years, these individuals after Daniel was gone kept looking forward to that one who was promised to Daniel. Interesting, isn't it? They were the ones who were interested. Who were the ones that were troubled? As you look at it, in verse 3 it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. These foreigners are interested and 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 after him to worship him. But Herod and all Jerusalem is troubled. Interesting, you'd think if your, your king was being sought after and possibly had arrived that there'd be this longing to meet him, but instead they're troubled. It's easy to understand why Herod was troubled because he was a usurper to the kingship. He, he, was a, he was a pretender. He wasn't of the line of David. And he knew he wasn't. And he was troubled because he didn't want someone coming that would take his throne. And if you keep reading in Matthew, you'll see a little bit later in the same chapter that he went to the effort to send his soldiers to Bethlehem and slaughter all the babies that were around the age predicted by the Magi in order to eliminate any possible threat to his throne. It's also interesting, though, to think that if all Jerusalem was troubled, that, that this included probably the religious leaders, the, the chief priests and the, and the scribes. Why would they be troubled? If you keep reading through Matthew, you'll see because they had comfortably positioned themselves in relationship with the Roman government who was allowing them tremendous authority um, over their people. And they in no way liked the idea of the real king of the Jews coming in and, and pushing them out of their place. And we see this when we see how misunderstood he was. The, the third interesting observation, not only those who were interested and those who were troubled, but, but how misunderstood he was. Look at verse 6. It says, And you, Bethlehem, this is the chief priests quoting Micah 5.2 to the Magi, saying that in Bethlehem he'll be born the land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah. And it's a total misquote. It's a 180 degrees misquote of Micah 5.2 that literally says, little among the tribes of Judah. And they quote it, by, by no means little among the tribes of Judah. Why would they do that? I mean... Did they, they knew what it said. Why did they misquote it? It's because they had come to understand and look forward to a king who would fit into their expectations, who would deliver them as a nation from the Romans. 
and not deliver them from the, their sins individually as a people. So that's how he was welcomed when he came. I want you to flip to the end of the book of Matthew, and we're just going to see at the end of his life how he was perceived in the same way. Okay, Matthew 26, excuse me, Matthew 27. As we try to understand this Jesus, the Messiah, Matthew 27, look at verses 35. And again, three interesting observations. Matthew 27, 35, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, it says, when they crucified him, verse 35, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, this is the soldiers, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The charge put above his head on the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Observation, who put that charge up there? It was Pilate, a Roman governor. In fact, if, you, if you're taking notes, you can jot down in John 19, 19 to 22, the chief priests complain about it, and they said, don't put up there, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, but put up there, he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate's response to them was, what I have written, I have written a Roman governor. The one labeling him as the king of the Jews, the Roman governor. Who's mocking him? As you keep reading, look at verses, um, just at verse, starting at verse 38, the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, saying, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, the Messiah, come down from the cross. Look at verse 41, though. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And so it's his very own people, the chief priests, the scribes, who should have known the prophecies, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, the promised one who would come and as like a lamb led to the slaughter, would become the savior on behalf of his people and all of the world. And they're saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. Misunderstanding the very reason for which he came. It wasn't to save himself, but it was to provide salvation for others. And so John 1.1 1, 1 says, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And boy, we see that graphically illustrated in, in Matthew chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 27. Those who were his own, his own people, didn't receive him, but as many as received him, it says, to those he gave the right to become children of God. Why didn't they receive him? It's because, as in John 19, 15, when the chief priests are responding to, to Pilate, 
they say, we have no king but Caesar. Isn't that profound? In John 19, 15, the chief priest, in responding to Pilate in, and him wanting to release Jesus because he found no fault in him, the chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. And they totally lost track of who their king was and who their king was to be and the king that had been promised and the king they were to be looking forward to. So was Jesus the king of the Jews? Well, not, not according to Jewish expectation. The king solely of the Jews' Jewish property coming to deliver the Jews from their natural enemies and reign over them to hell with the rest of the world. I'd encourage you to read through the Gospels and just... Ask, look at the perception of his people. In, in John 6.15, after Jesus fed 5,000 people, you know what they did? In John 6.15, it says, having fed them, they intending to take him by force and make him their king. <laughs> he kind of like just disappeared from their midst. They think, man, this is, this is the one we've been waiting for. He's going to feed us. He's going to liberate us from the Romans. He's our king. They totally misunderstood the king they were looking forward to. And all the way to the end, just before Jesus was to return to heaven, after he died on the cross, after he rose from the dead, and he was with his disciples, his very own followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, ask him this question. Is now the time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And they're thinking, okay, it must be the time. It must be the time that, I mean, we've, we've endured all this stuff. We don't understand. We don't, you know, we're happy you're alive. We don't understand why you died. Is it, is it the time now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel and Israel as a nation is going to conquer the rest of the world? not according to Jewish expectation, but definitely yes, according to biblical revelation. Listen to Matthew chapter 8 here, verses 11 and 12. As a, as a Roman centurion came to Jesus in Romans 8, pleading for his child's life, and Jesus heals his child from a distance. Verse 10 it says, when Jesus heard the, the faith of the Roman centurion, he marveled and he said to those who were following him, listen to these words. These, these would be hard words for the people of Israel to be hearing. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. The king of the Jews. And so Jesus in Matthew 28 says, All authority is mine in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of who? All nations, all ethnic people groups. 
And so Jesus, in response to his disciples' question, is now the time? In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus responds by saying these words. It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. That sounds good. Judea, that's okay. Samaria, and, and that would have brought to their minds the remembrance of him sitting at a well talking to a woman from Samaria or telling a parable about a good Samaritan and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so Jesus says in Mark 10:45 that he didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And in Matthew 26, Jesus offers himself as the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 that I read earlier. In Matthew 26, verse 63, Jesus, uh, in response to the high priest's question, I adjure you, I command you under oath to tell me whether you are the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's me, he said. But not, not, not like you expected. <laughs> not your property, but your Lord, the sovereign king of the universe. This is the point. I want us to get, and I'm just going to wrap it up here. Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was the king of the Jews in fulfillment of scripture for all people. And though rejected as such by his own people because they were looking for a king that was their own king, Though rejected by them in fulfillment of their very rejection, he became the Savior and the King of the whole world. <laughs> the promised King. You know, we could look at the, the Jewish people and say, man, how could they have missed it? <laughs> how could they have missed it? I mean, you, you read something like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and... And, and you see the promised king. You read through the book of Isaiah and you see the king of the Jews promised to be the sovereign king of the universe. And you say, how could they do it? How could they have made him their property instead of their king? But as I started, I want us to ask, our, isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do? Isn't that how we treat God, not as our boss, but as our property? Not someone that we submit to as the king of the universe. That's who he is. The Messiah, the king of the Jews, is the king, sovereign king. That's who he is. But so often, instead of submitting to him ourselves as king of the universe, that's what he is. We make him as someone who exists to meet our needs and submit to our expectations. Isn't that true? 
so much of the time. We make him what we want him to be in order to fulfill our expectations. That's all the Jewish people were doing, and we do the same. We say, he's my king, he's my property. Fulfill my expectations. You know, what a difference it makes. What a difference it makes. If we allow him to be king, if we submit to him as king, the promised Messiah, the one before every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is king of kings and lord of lords, what a difference that will make in our lives. Honestly, so many of us, our lives are in havoc and they're in disarray and they're dysfunctional because we're trying to be kings of our lives and getting him to fulfill our expectations instead of submitting to him as the king that he is and letting him be in charge of our lives, letting him run our lives, letting him be the king that he is. Is Jesus the Messiah your boss? Is he? Are you submitting to him? Are you looking to him to lead you, to be your Lord, to run your life? Or is he your property? Out to fulfill your expectations. This is what I have for my life. This is what I'm going to do. Now, God, this is what you got to do. And if you don't do it, man, he is so mean. He, where is he when I need him, right? I mean, I've heard that so many. Where is God when I need him? Well, <laughs> he's right where he needs to be. Your king, your boss, your lord, not your puppet, not your property. Fulfilling your expectations, but allowing him as your king to make you everything that only he as king can make you. Jesus, the king of the Jews, the sovereign king of all, my, my prayer this morning is that he would become king of our lives. Let's pray. Father, um, I thank you so much that, uh, that you sent Jesus not to fulfill our fleshly expectations and but to be our king and our savior and meet us where we need and, and, and give us what we need. Uh, Father, open our eyes, our hearts. Father, help us to bow our knees before him and make him our king so that we can really be the people that he's called us to be, that our lives can be changed in the way that he wants to change them according to what he wants to do and not what we want. Father, I just uh, again thank, thank you for Jesus. Amen. <laughs>